Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Encouraging Word podcast. Uh, my name is Stephen Young, and I'm youth director at Rocky River United Methodist Church, and I'm joined by Paul Bennett, the assistant pastor at Rocky River United Methodist Church. And uh, we've been doing um, this podcast that is hopefully encouraging, as it is in the title. Uh, but we are also um, continuing our series on um after acts so we're looking at all the um influential people who have influenced the church which makes them influential people um in the church who have really changed um and have affected the church in many different ways positive ways um we've looked at protestant reformations we looked at the early church fathers and now we're going to be looking at um a little bit past the protestant reformation to around uh I guess, we, what era would we say we're in right now? Uh, this is a 1700s, mostly. Yeah. 1700, early American Colonial colony. America, Colonial America, yeah, that type. Colonial yeah. America. Um, so we're gonna looking at um, influential people during that time. Quite a few, a lot of really great familiar names that you'll hear soon. Uh, but before we get to that, we're going to do our fit segment. And this is something that's funny, interesting, and thought-provoking. And... Um, we're going to have Paul hit us off with the first one. All right. Thanks, Stephen. Uh, so this probably isn't funny. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I'll, I'll go with interesting. But um, my wife and my two kids right now are on the school trip. Uh, one participates in, in the Rocky River Band and the other in, in uh, choir for, for the high school. And they are uh, on their way down to Disney World where they are going to um, perform in, in different venues uh, once or twice, each uh, band and a choir, and then, and then get to enjoy some of the, the thrills of Disney. And Do they perform on ice? They perform on ice, Disney on ice. Or, or are they on asphalt? They're not on asphalt, right? No, I think in down south <laughs> it's asphalt, and then oh when they yeah, come yeah. up north it's on ice. <laughs> 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 At least uh, this time of year it would be on ice. Yeah, so they're going to be Disney on asphalt. <laughs> and uh, uh, the interesting part that's definitely not funny is, is uh, uh, they're in a uh, caravan of several buses. They chartered buses for the, the band and the choir. And, and uh, uh, in route to Florida, I think in South Carolina last night, one of the, the buses took a chunk of ice uh, from a, a semi-truck nearby, and it went uh, up and hit the windshield and shattered, I, I believe, a good portion of the windshield. Um, and uh, pretty pretty traumatic experience, I think, for a lot of the students on the bus. And I can't imagine being that bus driver. So um, they, they went through that ordeal last night. Everybody's safe. Everybody's uh, perfectly fine. Um, but the, the process now afterwards has uh, been trying to either repair or, or get a new bus. And uh, bus drivers are only... Uh, safely allowed to be on the clock for so many hours, so working through um, the, the ramifications of everything that's happened, still trying to get the students down to Disney. So um, I thought that was definitely not funny, but interesting. Uh, everything they're going through, and uh, we'll ask for your, your prayers, even though by the time you're hearing this, uh, they may already hopefully be safely on their way back, but uh, we shall see. Hopefully they still have a great time and, and enjoy uh, performing and, and uh, playing down in Disney World. All right. Well, um, I'm thinking, though, that do windshields really shatter? So um, Caleb texted both of us about the experience that happened, texted some blurry pictures, and we were trying to figure out what they were. Um, but when I think about it, windshields don't really shatter. They splinter. They, like, because they're made out of a different sort of glass than, like, a window pane. Like, they're made to kind of, like, take impact and not really shatter into mm. many pieces. So if it really did shatter, I mean, that's got to be... Quite a like, force, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, incredible. I think a new new technology, new window technology, right. probably not even all that new, but, uh, yeah, it doesn't shatter on impact. Yeah. It's more of a... That's yeah, splintering right. or creating that webbed effect. Um, right. But, yeah, there was clearly... Uh, portion of the windshield that was gone that had been knocked, knocked out. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I wonder if they just cleared the glass off and just kept going, you know, just <laughs> who, who needs a windshield? You just 
right? tell the kids to bundle up in the back like you're on a motorcycle. Right, just keep right. going. Yeah. Well, I was on the phone with my son. <laughs> he was telling me all about it. I said, so it's the, the windshield's actually gone like a bird could fly in any minute, <laughs> you know, when you're driving down the highway. He said, yeah, yeah. He thought that was funny. So, um, That's funny. Yeah, I guess you could. I mean, yeah. people do it every day with uh, convertibles, but well, they still have a, a windshield. Top. They right. still have it's a windshield. Top, right? <laughs> it's a little different scenario. Yeah. It's a little different. All right, so my fit segment is going to have to deal a little bit with the weather that we uh, just recently had a couple of days ago. Um, so, um, what the way? So let me describe this. Back in the past, growing up for most of my life, I had to when it snowed a lot on the driveway, I had to use that tool. What's that tool called? Oh, a, a snow shovel. Yeah. So I had to use a snow shovel. And we and since we moved to our new house, I guess it's been three years now since we lived here, um, but our driveway is really long, um, the longest driveway we've ever had. So we had to use a shovel to shovel out all the snow. And it's back-breaking work, and it's hard and sweaty and tiring and exhausting. And, mm. yeah, it's, it's just hard. Wow. And then <laughs> <laughs> we were blessed with a snowblower. And uh, this is actually the second year having a snowblower. And it's proved its worth. It proves it proved its worth last year, but we didn't. We uh, I, I forgot to mention it. The snowblower has really changed my life. You know, it's. I feel like this is like a testimony or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's uh once you once it gets working, even uh, we had quite a bit of snow, so you kind of had to. And the snowblower's not huge, um, but man, it makes light work of the snow, and it's incredible. It's so much e- more easy. It's a and uh efficient and it's it's been a blast so i'm just a call out to all the snowblowers out there thank you for blowing all the snow off our driveways thank you for your service yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. so with all the spare time that that creates right right with uh, so my guess is you're probably the guy who just walks the <laughs> sidewalk of the whole neighborhood and takes care of everybody's walks for him uh, if there's we, this past one there was a ton of snow so there's no way i would be able to do the the uh, sidewalk but so i have done it i have done it but fast yeah. yeah i've done it before okay but uh That's nice yeah you. yeah i mean this it, it's not as great as my neighbor who has a truck with a plow so he just plows <laughs> his own <laughs> driveway so I'm, I'm a little like you know like oh well he's got a truck with a plow but at least i have a snowblower so but yeah his his is impressive yeah so well, maybe i'll put a plow on the van you know, There's an idea. There for you it. go. First, yeah. first plow van. That'd be great. <laughs> Statement right there. Uh, yes. It's uh, <laughs> one more way that you can feel like you're not uh, <laughs> resigning yourself to minivan dad status. Right. Like there you who's, go. Who's exactly. Minivan has a, a plow on I it. Know, That's really none. cool, right? Exactly. Yeah. Well, I think, and once you go snowblower, you don't go back. You know, no. we, Stephen and I were discussing earlier how. All of these newfangled technology things. Uh, once you you embrace them, it's you know you go go back a, a stage and you feel like you know life is just awful because because <laughs> <laughs> my snowblower doesn't work. I have to lift a shovel. And, right. You know my phone isn't working properly, and, right. or, or my TV remote doesn't work. I got to right. stand up and walk over. Right. I don't even think you can change the channel on the TV anymore, right? Do they even have buttons on the TV? No. Well, you can convert your phone into a remote now. See? Well, then if nothing can Ru- go wrong then. Right. If you have a Roku player, this is just a, um, this is a service tip here. If you have a <laughs> Roku player, you can uh, download the Roku app and change your phone into the remote. So. Wow. Yeah. Although most people that would need to know that are probably people <laughs> who have no idea what a Roku player right. is <laughs> or how to download apps on their phone that's true yeah which uh, i'm not too far from that status right but we digress um uh if you're if you're done with your fit we we got work to do here yep okay all right very inspiring thank you (laughs) um so we're we're talking about uh four gentlemen i I feel like we're almost to the era uh in christian history where we'll get to work in uh somebody that's not a a man at some point (laughs) and get to hear some contributions of, of some ladies or, or some minority figures as well um, but at this stage in history still primarily uh, white males that are are the movers and shakers as far as what's recorded in the, the history texts 
So uh, the first gentleman that we're going to do a deep dive into is is uh, George Fox, none other than George Fox, um, and probably the the least recognizable name of of the four that we're going to cover today. So if I, if you don't know George, I'm going to fill you in, um, and and you'll get to know him and, and love him here shortly. So uh, Fox was born in a small English village. Uh, so he was born in in England, and uh, we'll start to see in this time period that uh, some of the, the Christian leaders are actually born into uh, the American colonies and have that uh, experience from the beginning. But Fox was born in England. He was the son of a, a weaver. Um, in his childhood, he became a cobbler's apprentice. But uh, you can already start to see uh, his, his inner workings here, his personality. He was disgusted with uh, how immoral his fellow apprentices were. So he, he quit uh, being a cobbler's apprentice, and he set off on... Uh, his own little spiritual journey. He started traveling around England and attending religious meetings and trying to get a, a word from God as to what in the world he was to do with his life. He immersed himself in, in the Bible, um, and eventually he came to the conclusion that uh, all of the, the Christian sects that he, were, uh, he was surrounded by, all of these, these groups of uh, believers, that they were all wrong, that none of them had uh, anything all that... Uh, redeemable about them that their worship was was disgraceful um his some of his uh feelings were that uh, pastors who worked for a salary were nothing more than um what he described as journeymen uh basically they they were in it for the wrong reasons um he thought that hymns singing hymns and, and preaching sermons even um and, and taking the sacraments reciting creeds that all of these traditional worship uh, pieces were actually hindering worship rather than helping people uh, to worship. His focus instead was to look for the what he called the inner light uh, for inspiration. He argued that this inner light was actually in everyone, and uh, some, you know, maybe it had uh, brightened more than in others, but it was not uh, an intellect, uh, it was not anything about reasoning ability or, or morality, but it was uh, one's capacity to recognize and accept God into their life. So everybody has this, this inner light uh, that's drawing them to God, and it helps them uh, believe, helps them understand scripture, and it's through this inner light that people come to, to know and uh, come into relationship with God. He, uh, here's a quote from him. He says, These things I did not see by the help of man, nor by the letter, but I saw them in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ and by his immediate spirit and power, as did the holy men of God by whom the holy scriptures were written. So he's speaking of this, this inner light uh, that brought him into connection and awareness of Jesus. So uh, Fox, uh, with this, this knowledge of this understanding that he's embraced, um, he's, he's struggling at this point in his life to share this with other people. Uh, he's hesitant about how people would receive it, but at one point eventually he's called, he feels by the Spirit, to speak out in a, a Baptist meeting that he's attending. And uh, when he started speaking out, this was just the first of many times in sharing his beliefs, uh, he, he didn't receive a very good, <laughs> very good reaction from a lot of the folks around him. Uh, many people treated him with contempt, uh, reached the point he was even physically thrown out of meetings. He was beaten. He was stoned. Uh, he was jailed. He spent uh, a total of six years in different uh, portions of, of his life in prison. Uh, once he was thrown into jail for interrupting a, a preacher who was saying that the ultimate truth in, in life was found in the Bible. I'm not sure exactly what Fox uh, disagreed with about that notion, but somehow he didn't like the way it was being communicated. Another time he was thrown in jail for blasphemy. Uh, another time for conspiring against the government. Uh, so he was making a lot of, a lot of enemies out there. But uh, as is the, the case with anybody uh, who has leadership skills and strong convictions, he was also gathering followers, people who did buy into what he believed. And uh, those who followed him uh, came alongside him to uh, create their own worship experience. And, and when they did it, they... They made sure as best as possible that nothing could get in the way of their interaction with the Spirit. So uh, all those things that he um, believed were detrimental to the worship experience, he did away with. No sacraments, uh, no sermon, um, 
people uh, sat in, in silence and, and communed with God. And, and if somebody felt called to speak aloud or pray aloud, they could do so. But otherwise, uh, they sat in silence. People started calling them Quakers uh, because they would break into to trembling when they were moved by the Spirit during their worship. Uh, but Fox was, wasn't keen on the term Quakers, <laughs> not surprisingly <laughs> He preferred that his um, his family be called friends, his, his church family and, and followers be called friends. So Fox em emphasized uh, the importance amongst the friends of community and love uh, with his uh, church family. Decisions were not made just by the majority. They would not make a decision unless they had a 100% consensus of everybody involved. And if they couldn't arrive at that, they would just keep postponing making a decision until um, the, the spirit led them to a, a place of consensus. The, the friends refused to swear oaths or, or tithes. Uh, they refused to bow to, to those who were uh, socially superior to them. And they were also staunch pacifists. So Fox took his, his beliefs and not just uh, established his own uh, following and his own church community, but he started traveling abroad to spread this, this gospel of the inner light. Uh, he went to places like Scotland, to Ireland, he went to the Caribbean, and also to, to North America. And uh, in Scotland, he, he received not a, a very pleasant welcome. He was accused of sedition there and had similar um, issues everywhere that he traveled. Nonetheless, in, in both England and ultimately in America, the friends uh, were were uh, growing, and they made some very uh, well-known, famous converts, such as William Penn, the founder of Pennsylvania. And I think, uh, in my experience, it's been Pennsylvania, William Penn, that, uh, from the American perspective, were most closely associated with uh, the Quakers and the Friends. Uh, but they continued to be severely persecuted for decade after decade after decade. Um, the Quakers never became numerically large. Uh, they they're uh, their total nowadays is about a half million followers, but uh, they did eventually earn the respect of other Christian denominations kind of settled into their um, own little nook within uh, the sphere of Christianity. So uh, George Fox was an interesting uh, and radical revolutionary, you might say, um, in his own right, um, and maybe never took the world by storm, and his ideas didn't spread uh, far and wide and, and uh become the, the mainstream uh, beliefs within Christianity, but it certainly made people think and uh, pushed his, his agenda and, and uh, had a, a powerful following. So that's uh, George Fox for you. Um, one of the things we try and do is just toss out like a discussion question just to, to help us think and, and break down what we've learned here. So uh, one of the things I'll, I'll throw out to Stephen and I uh, is that Fox thought that all of these other Christian groups around him were wrong, and he responded by trying to create his own group, his own Christian experience, right, such that uh, as best as possible, all of these practices that he believed to be corrupt or a distraction from what uh, faith is truly supposed to be were removed. So I was curious what uh, Stephen thought about uh, Fox's um, approach to the faith and this idea of um, just uh, deleting or, or <laughs> removing all of these these practices uh, and trying to make the, the, the Christian experience pure, um, but with so little left um, when you take all those out that, that ultimately it was a very simple uh, worship experience. Any thoughts on that? Right. I think it's, <coughs> well, he's definitely continuing in the spirit of um, the Protestant Reformation that we had talked about earlier about um, a lot of, um, part of the reformers in the Protestant Reformation thought, and, and were correctly so, that there's a lot of corruption in the Catholic Church. So they went off and started um, uh, Christianity, which eventually became just the Protestant denominations. So he's kind of continuing that similar vein of of starting his own church or denomination and, and seeing the cor potential corruption or alleged corruption that he, he saw um, I think the hard thing, though, a little bit about this is that, and I think of it from a theological standpoint, that in the sense that there are other people who have said, well, the church is all corrupt, let me go off and to this secluded area and kind of start, quote-unquote, my own church. The problem is, from a theological standpoint, is that we're all sinners. Um, so there isn't a way in the sense that we'll get this perfect 
Christian community. Um, I don't believe that's possible um, on earth as the way it is and, and the way we are. Um, the, we just don't look at the sin around us. We have to look at the sin within us. Um, and there's no way to completely deal with that sin until, I mean, this is why Christ is coming, right, to mm-hmm. to bring the kingdom of God and to bring that fulfillment that really as Christians we desire that 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 pure um, kingdom of God that where the glory of God covers the whole earth, um, as the prophets would say. So that we're all waiting for that and desiring that, um, but it's Christ who's ultimately going to bring that to fruition. Um, so you have someone who's George Fox who, who uh, who's trying to do something that that I believe is is good, you know, in the sense of trying to rid the church of of perceived corruption and such, but. Um, I'm always a little cautious when someone's like, I'm going to bring the purest form of Christianity or I'm going to be the right form of Christianity because um, you'll see how how that's not completely possible. Hmm. Yeah, that, I, I think that's a really important lesson for us to embrace. And I think for me personally, I'm, I'm somewhat convicted by it because it's always been a, a personal pursuit of mine or maybe more of a fantasy that one day, you know, I'll either create or, or <coughs> uh, be drawn into some experience of Christianity that is free of all of the uh, the institutional you know bindings and and all of the corruption and all of the politics and and just have this pure uh, experience of, of Christianity and, and in my mind it's always been something as, as close as possible to the uh, the model portrayed in the book of Acts and in the early church um, but I, I think it's a good reminder, as Fox demonstrates for us, or at least as we reflect on his life and his pursuits, that you know it's not the it's not finding the right practices and, and traditions and and rhythms to your worship service and and church family that uh, gets you there. It's uh, the problem isn't those those rituals and traditions. The, the problem is that uh, the sin resides within the people <laughs> within us. So um, I don't I don't think it makes it an empty and worthless pursuit. But I think uh, to think that you're, you're going to somehow uh, achieve this perfect uh, church experience or faith experience uh, just by, you know, shedding all this stuff um, that is not healthy and not what God intended, I think is just uh, foolishness because uh, you're going to replace, eventually you're going to replace it with something. There has to be some sort of structure or um, rhythm or, or traditions or something that you do and ways that you bring yourselves together and function together. And, and uh, because we're broken people, eventually those things are going to become broken again and we'll be just uh, trying to cleanse all over again. So um, I think it's helpful for me, as uh, I always keep that in the back of my mind, wanting to, to have that pure church and faith experience, but also knowing that uh, it's, it's just not ever going to be 100% obtainable. Yeah and, I, yeah, and I completely agree with that as well. All right, we're going to jump on to the next couple names. So, uh, Paul just covered George Fox. So the next couple of names we're going to cover are pretty well known. So we, um, from here on out, we you might have heard of these. I just uh, realized that uh, should we? I, I thought we'd give them a clue, like a teaser. All of the guys today are named either George or John, right? right? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't think about that yeah. until right now. So right. if you want to not really <laughs> listen to Stephen and want to be thinking right. and guessing as to who might be yeah. coming. I, I forgot. We have two Georges and two Johns. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, th- there were so many unique names back then, you know. It's, it's <laughs> like the parents are like, what do we name our son, George or John? <laughs> oh, man, l- let me sleep on that one. Right, <laughs> right. <yeah. laughs> That's funny. Um all right, so the next person we're going to talk about is George Whitfield, um, who, he, out of the remaining people we have, maybe you haven't heard of him, but I, I think most people may have heard of George Whitfield. He was pretty big. Um, so George Whitfield was born in England, um, and he really enjoyed, um, in, in his early school life, he really enjoyed plays and performances um, and quickly grew up in that kind of culture. He put himself through college um, went to Oxford um, and became um, really good friends. So really good friends with someone else we're going to speak about with a little hint as uh, John Wesley. Um, and he became really close to him. Um, but before that, before we could speak to that, George Whitfield um, 
uh, is, is a really well-known figure for the 18th century English-speaking world, and um, his ministry was tremendously large and really well-known. Um, but like I was going back before, he ended up meeting um, the Wesleys, and he was part of their uh, group, which was, what was their group called? Holy the Holy Club. Holy Club, yes. Yeah. So he, he fell into a group um, called Methodist, which Methodist means that diff- they would follow specific methods in their worship, right? In yeah, it really with started with the Holy Club because they tried to methodically map right. out their 24-hour day so that every minute of every right. hour was methodically right. committed to God <coughs> in, in a strategic way. Right. So it's he kind of a mockery, you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It is, it is a mockery, it was a very flattering. right? But it ended up sticking. Um, and so yeah, so this group also had Wesley and Wesley's brother in it, and maybe a couple others, I'm not sure how many, uh, but also under their influence, he experienced the new birth and decided to become a missionary um, to the new Georgia colony on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. So, the, this holy club was very, very influential. Matter of fact, you could say it's what brought him saving the saving knowledge of faith um, is through this holy club um, but what, one of the things that Wesley is really uh, Wesley George Whitfield is really known for is his preaching style and how he would really draw people in through his sermons um, so most of the sermons at the time were delivered in a plain quote-unquote plain style which often seemed more like a lecture but Whitfield's sermons uh, were more like a theological theological performance with oversized gestures and shouting and jumping um kind of like paul during a steelers game you know he's <laughs> <laughs> yes just as much Jumpy, joy shouty, and right. exuberance yeah <laughs> besides when they played the chiefs anyways oh, uh, <laughs> um his preaching was unmatched i mean there there were people who would actors who would comment on whitfield's preaching style um, there were no ordinary sermons. He, he would even portray the lives of biblical characters with a realism that no one had seen before. Um, he cried, he danced, he screamed, all among the enthralled. One of the enthralled was uh, actor David Gagrich. Um, he's not, he was a famous actor in Britain. He said he just wished he could um, speak like Whitfield when he would say, Oh, <laughs> I guess. Um, yeah, I read that too. Right. Just the way Whitfield said, oh, oh right. <laughs> Must have been. And since we don't have any audio recording, Right. There's no audio. Right. Um, that's unfortunate. I wish there was some kind of audio. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he, he, you can just, by the evidence, though, it just fit, um, points to Whitfield being quite the orator. Uh, Whitfield's ministry crossed uh, denominational lines as he was willing to preach the gospel in uncompromising. Um, way to any group that would have him. Um, his ministry, um, you can almost think of him as somewhat of a, like a Billy Graham. Billy Graham wasn't, he didn't have a, Billy Graham didn't have a church, but he spoke um, in many different places, many different ways. So you kind of think of him as an early Billy Graham. Um, his ministry in the early American colonies helped start the Great, o- Great Awakening, and he is often seen as the father of the American uh, revival- revivalism. Before his tours of the colonies were complete, virtually every man, woman, and child had heard of the great itinerant, was his name. He was a great itinerant. Um, everyone heard him at least speak once. Um, so so persuasive was Whitfield's impact in America um, that he could justly be styled um, as America's first cultural hero, which is a great way to think that the first cultural hero in America was not a singing celebrity or actor was a pastor you know and that gives something paul to live up to to be the are you going to be the next cultural hero pastor yeah would i just be the second <laughs> i think yeah the second one yeah, yeah. whitfield and i He's the new whitfield yeah um indeed before whitfield it is undoubtful any name other than royalty was well known equally from boston to charleston um whitfield's name was known far and wide in america whitfield also made it a point um Um, to speak to the slave community as part of his revivals. Um, Though he was far from an abolitionist, nevertheless, he increasingly sought out audiences of slaves and wrote on their behalf. Um, The responses were so great that some historians date it as the genesis of the African-American Christianity. 
Um, everywhere Whitfield preached, he collected support for an orphanage that he had started in Georgia. Um, so people, he would raise money for his orphanage. Um, so the spiritual revival that he ignited through the Great Awakening became one of the most um, uh, most informative events in American history. So when he spoke in Boston Commons, um, not sure what year it was, but when he spoke in Boston Commons, it was before 23,000 people. So this was likely the largest gathering of American, uh, largest gathering in American history up until this point. So um, he brought in 23,000 people. I mean, that's, that's a lot for then. Um, in 1770, the he kept preaching and preaching. Um, he preached... Um, probably preached for 34, he preached for 34 years in the ministry, and it's estimated that Whitfield's preaching, um, he preached 8,000 sermons and was heard by more than 10 million people. Um, so he his preaching ministry expanded kind of the globe of that time, uh, essentially England, Ireland, Wales, America, Scotland. Um, so a lot of the, at least the Western world, he spoke in. Um, so he was very, very well known. And so in 1770, um, the 50-year-old kept preaching um, to the colonies, and he, but he was wearing himself out. Um, and he's quoted as saying, I would rather wear out than rust out. That was one of his quotes. Um, he ignored the danger signs. In particular, he had asthmatic colds, and, and he had great difficulty breathing. And, um, but he kept preaching, kept preaching, kept preaching, kept preaching right through it. Um, his one of his last quotes is saying he was speaking of the inf- um, he's speaking of, of works and salvation, the merit of salvation. One listener recounted for the press, and then suddenly um, he, out of a loud cry, the speaker said, "He said works, works. A man gets to heaven, gets to heaven by works. But I will say, as soon as I would as soon think of climbing to the moon on a rope of sand. So in other words, he said, you can't get to heaven by works, just like you can't climb a rope of sand. Um, and the, after that dramatic sermon, the message, uh, Whitfield would um, pass away that next morning. Um, but Whitfield kept an um, unbelievable pace, as I spoke about earlier. He spoke to the public um, many, 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 many times in different countries. He loved to preach. Um, he was one of the first, as I said, cultural heroes in America. Um, and also Whitfield had a dramatic influence among um, other preachers, Jonathan Edwards, which hint, hint, we'll get to, and then also William Wilberforce. Um, but he had a dramatic influence on many people and, and the next generation. So hmm. great, great, well-known. Well, not as well-known as he probably should be, but he during his time is, again, like a, like a Billy Graham figure. Um, known by everyone. Yeah, I had heard the name Whitfield a number of times and knew a few things about his theology, but reading about his life <coughs> and uh, just his unique personality and, and preaching style was fascinating. Uh, so just to, to process that for a minute, you know, thinking about um, Whitfield's preaching style and, and his very emotionally uh, passionate and, and theatrical displays that he would include in his uh, preaching times um, in this notion of him being a cultural hero you know in, in American history and, and in the era that he lived in just wonder as we break down the kind of the positives and negatives like what are the what are the benefits of um, having a, a preacher who is who is an icon who kind of takes the the nation by storm and is uh, so engaging and and uh, powerful as an order that uh, they get a, a following like that but what are the, the risks and how do you tell if somebody like that is truly authentic or if it's really just for show you know there's been other uh christian leaders and, and preachers throughout history that have uh gathered quite a following and but uh, unfortunately have uh fizzled out or or maybe uh, found to be corrupt in some way you know have have uh made some unethical decisions or, or choices in life. So, you know, is this is this a good thing? Is it a bad thing? What do you think, Stephen? Yeah, that's, that's really hard to say. Um, that of being, you know, there. It, it's kind of funny how when he spoke to 23,000 people, it was, it was a big during that time, but now you have ministers that speak to 23,000 people every Sunday. Right, right. Um, so it's, 
so it, not the crowds and the popularity isn't necessarily bad, but I do wonder though how that popularity in the crowds and and the influence affects a man in 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 a sense that again going back to what we had talked about earlier that everyone is a sinner and, and you're not going to find the perfect preacher um, whoever that is and, and and a lot of times when I think of ministers who have a high impact like that I really pray for them because of the immense pressure um, that they're under and I think I believe in, in, in a uh, I believe in, in Satan and I believe in, in the spiritual attack and, and I think um, it's one thing that where the enemy can attack someone like that and, and the influence that they have it's it's quite a feat actually to be honest that someone can um do that and remain um as faithful to the lord as they possibly can because I, I think of other people just in scripture who had dramatic influence you think of moses and david and 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 the pressure that they were under with the nation on their backs um they had great influences but they also fell and, and stumbled so um, of course, there's a huge risk in that and in the, in the immense popularity, but at the same time, you can't necessarily just write it off. Um, I think it's important to see what are they preaching, how are they living, does it align with the Word of God, and if it doesn't hit all those check marks, then it doesn't matter how popular someone is. It's um, they're, they're not walking in faithful lockstep with the Lord. Mm. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Well, and First of all, I, I feel your prayers every day, Stephen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For me and my prayer. Right, but right. <laughs> I know 23,000 people listen to this podcast for sure. Right, so right. The we're, pressure we're, we're under is Yep. We're going to have to improve our technology. <laughs> right. Yeah, we're getting swamped. Um, but uh, I would completely agree with every, everything you've said. There's, there's a lot of risk involved. Um, and you know to to those who much have been given much will be expected and, and that includes gifts that includes speaking ability that includes uh, charisma you know dynamic ability to to draw people in uh, much is expected if, if you have those gifts much is expected for you to be able to remain uh, pure and, and uh, righteous and and a positive presence and, and force in the lives of those people because there's gonna be a lot of temptation a lot of exhaustion. Um, so that is absolutely true. And to me, you know, that is certainly one piece of it. Does that individual remain healthy and, and a person of integrity? And, and the other piece is, uh, what is what is their fruit? Are they ultimately drawing people uh, closer to Christ and into relationship with God? Or are they just uh, drawing people to them? You know, so uh, it's, it's also a tremendous feat as that individual to, to be able to point people, continue to point people um, not to yourself, but to, to the Lord who's blessing you with the gifts and the ability to, to lead in the way that you are. And that's a, a delicate, very delicate um, and easily corruptible process as well. What, um, what the great uh, philosophers say, Uncle Ben, with great power comes great responsibility. Uncle Ben? He said that to Spider-Man. Oh, I was yeah. thinking of the rice guy. <laughs> Isn't there Uncle Ben's <laughs> rice? Oh, yeah, there is. No, I was <laughs> no Spider-Man, his uncle. He said, oh. great power. With great power comes great responsibility. Yeah, I'm not, so I Peter don't know Parker. anything about the Spider-Man oh, stuff. come on. Jeez, man. But we'll the rice guy, if he was <laughs> a ri- great philosopher. <laughs> the rice guy. I'd be all about that. Oh, wow. Wow. We digressed. We do again. Uh <laughs> best turn to john wesley he can get us oh, yeah. back straightened out so uh wesley is you know for for those listening who are true probably Methodists, never heard of him yeah <laughs> wesley's your uh your your guy he's the, the founder <laughs> of methodism even though he never intended to to be a founder of of anything but uh here's what we can tell you about wesley he was born into a strong anglican home anglican meaning simply the, the church of england and uh, so he was born in England, born with his father as an Anglican priest. His father was named Samuel. His mother, Susanna, um, was a homemaker, but uh, very, very uh, intense uh, and uh, effective in teaching her children religion and morals. Um, and she had 19 children. So that's about the size of the average classroom, <laughs> more or less, <laughs> isn't it? So she might as well have been a school teacher. 
in addition to being a mother and a wife. Uh, so quite an impressive woman. I know there are biographies out there just about Susanna Wesley. Do you want to, this astounding. is, this is a, just a side note here. Uh, real quickly, because I, I thought it was funny. I, we, Emily and I, my wife, we wanted to know how many, um, what was the most amount of births by one woman? Do you want to? Right. You and Emily want to know that? Yeah, we, we were guessing. Were you, we, oh, okay. we looked it up. Thought maybe you guys were like <laughs> no. taking on some kind of challenge. No, or, no. no? Two, two is more than enough. Oh. What, do you, what do you think the record is for most most births? Wow. Um, by by a woman or by a married couple? By That's a good question. It's usually a married couple. Okay. It's a couple. I'm going to go. I'm going to guess. Oh, jeez. I'm going to guess. 30. Let's go 30. Oh, uh, nope, it's uh, 77. What? 77. <laughs> what? She, Emily didn't believe me. Either. She didn't think it was possible, but. Uh, it's not possible. Yeah, no, and then. It takes it nine months. Seven, there's for like them 77, 76. One woman from not too long ago was like 66. Oh. Like well, if, if we yeah. want to know who to blame for the uh, <laughs> overpopulation of the world. Right. There you go. Yeah, goodness. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's. Um, you can look it up out there. <laughs> you wanna? I'll, I'll do that yeah. as soon as we finish. I, I want to know how that math works out. Right. I know. That's Must fun. have been, uh, you know, birthing children from, you know, right. your teens to your 50s. Yeah, at least. exactly. Um, a lot of triplets and quadruplets and all those in there, too. So. Wow. Yeah. Well, so 13 by Wesley's. 19, 19 but still that's right. that's nothing right yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's nothing not uh-huh. even impressive mr <laughs> mrs wesley right. but uh wesley attended oxford as we heard uh, george whitfield as well did he was a, a fine scholar he was soon ordained into uh, the anglican priesthood so he was actually a, a, a priest in the church of england um the Holy Club that Stephen discussed with regards to George Whitfield was actually started not by John Wesley, but by his brother Charles Wesley, um, who is most known nowadays for having authored a number of the hymns that remain in, in the Methodist hymnal. But uh, John and Charles and George Whitfield were three of a number of members of this Holy Club, the society in which uh, they, they pledged to live holy lives, very methodical, like we said, and and laying out their time so they were serving God w- with every minute and included uh, study and, and prayer and um, also service as they went into uh, London and, and visited prisons and uh, served the, the orphans and, and mentored and tutored them. Um, so the Holy Club became kind of this, this notion that John Wesley latched onto of how uh, people of faith should and, and could live out their day-to-day lives and ended up his first chance to put that into practice as a Christian leader uh, came when he did what George Whitfield uh, did and, and ended up as a missionary and a, a preacher in the colony of Georgia at the time, which was uh, relatively new. So he went out to Georgia, uh, sailed out there, and, and tried to implement everything with uh, um, his new congregation that he had put into practice with his brother through the Holy Club. And it actually ended up being an absolute failure. Uh, the church rebelled. They, they didn't want anything to do with it. Uh, they thought he was forcing all this stuff on them. He also had a, a bit of a, a dramatic ordeal out there when he tried to uh, um, court and marry a woman who ended up uh, being um, committed to another man and so essentially got tarred and feathered and <laughs> run out of town. So not such a good visit to America. Uh, Wesley went back to, to England and he was uh, very bitter at the time and uh, even on on his faith he was down on his faith and at the time he also concluded that uh, his faith was not healthy in fact he didn't even feel like he had truly been saved Um, and on may 24th 1738 after having a a conversation with some moravians another church group um, that were on the ship that he was on returning back to england uh, they inspired him and uh, he had this experience uh, in 1738 where he was at a church uh, meeting or at the time they were called meetings but essentially a worship service um, on aldersgate street which is a famous uh, location even to this point where he was uh, sitting in the service and and he describes uh, that his heart was strangely warmed and he felt uh, that 
Uh, prior to this, he had not truly trusted in Christ, but in this moment, in the midst of uh, worship, he felt his heart warmed, and he felt that he surrendered uh, his life into um, into the Lord, to the Lord, and, and received salvation and assurance that his sins had been forgiven and um, that he would be with his Lord one day. And this emboldened him and uh, set him back into the, the, the mission field or back to, to serving the church. Um, and uh, the way he did this initially was actually, this is the George Whitfield connection. He and George had become buddies through the Holy Club in Oxford. He found out uh, George was um, out in the city of Bristol, England, and he was having tremendous success already doing his very, uh, uh, very eccentric and, and impressive preaching uh, skills and, and uh, episodes. And John was invited to come out and help George uh, pastor the people of, of Bristol. And uh, so Wesley accepted. He was kind of hesitant because he wasn't sure what he thought about Whitfield's dramatic preaching style. Uh, Whitfield was also preaching outdoors, which was a pretty radical innovation for that time. Um, and Wesley didn't know that he trusted some of these things that, that Whitfield was doing. Uh, but Wesley went out and uh, gave it a shot anyway. He quickly became one of the leaders of this movement that, that Whitfield uh, was in the midst of, but uh, he and, and Whitfield had some differences. Uh, for one, Whitfield was a firm Calvinist, uh, which meant uh, in particular that he believed in the doctrine of predestination. This was something Wesley was not uh, comfortable with. He was not in agreement with. Uh, Wesley al also happened to believe that uh, Christians could uh, attain towards uh, full sanctification, full perfection, uh, in this life, which is a conversation for another day. In fact, something that uh, Reverend Dan touched on in his sermon this past Sunday. Um, but uh, Wesley fully believed this. Whitfield did not. So the two found out that they could not lead side by side because of their differences. So they parted ways. Uh, Wesley did not intend after this to, to start a new denomination. But uh, his, his followers, as he continued to preach and lead, uh, his followers begin to, began to grow uh, he would organize them into societies, uh, into uh, classes. These are different groupings of uh, gatherings of people. The classes in particular were groups of 11 uh, people with one leader. And uh, much like, uh, I think, the Holy Club, once again, he went back to his, his roots in Oxford and started to plug his members, his followers, into these Holy Clubs where they would meet weekly. They would read the Bible, pray together, discuss their spiritual lives. Uh, they would give to local charities, and uh, this was one of the ways that he ensured that uh, his followers were not just inspired by uh, incredible preaching, but they were being transformed uh, by regular meetings with other believers and digging deep in, into their faith. So his movement began to, to grow rapidly. Uh, this Methodist uh, label that he had picked up in, in Oxford uh, stuck, and uh, they began to be referred to as Methodists. And a lot of people didn't like uh, their methods. <laughs> a lot of people um, were, were not keen on Wesley's beliefs and the ways he went about them. And Methodists were often met with uh, violence and, and people that would come in and, and break up their meetings and, and try and uh, destroy what Wesley was trying to accomplish, even threaten his life. Uh, but Wesley continued, continued to lead, continued to call people to Christ. And uh, I think uh, topping even George Whitfield. He preached uh, some 40,000 sermons over the course of his life. He traveled uh, every single year, 4,000 miles, uh, mostly on horseback or on foot, um, to, to preach the gospel and call people to Christ uh, primarily, but to his uh, Methodist uh, ways of, of living out their faith. And uh, others that joined him is Brother Charles, who was a, an Anglican priest, uh, and uh, like I said, a hymn, hymn writer, he joined the Methodist, uh, but most of the preaching still fell on, on John. Uh, he eventually realized he needed to trust other people to preach and, and continue his movement alongside him. So he brought in lay preachers. They weren't allowed to serve communion, some things that he wasn't ready to trust them with, but uh, he allowed them into the mix. Um, he continued to organize his followers in, in different ways to make sure that they were uh, continuing to connect and, and uh, grow together. So he created circuits where circuit riders, uh, preachers, would travel uh, through different towns uh, repeatedly to preach the gospel to them. 
each circuit uh, had some somebody who was overseeing uh, the preaching and the leading in, in that particular uh, geographic area called a superintendent, a term still applied in, in Methodism today. Uh, periodic meetings of, of all the clergy and lay preachers were implemented that were called annual conferences, uh, also still occur today. And uh, Wesley, with his, his organizational skills, uh, his, his strong and, and firm theological convictions, he had quite an impact, uh, not just in England, but in the Americas. And this is your guy. This is the, the founder of Methodism, never his intent, um, but uh, just uh, between uh, his skills and, and his passion and his uh, absolute conviction to, to leave an impact on what he intended to be the Church of England, but um, starting a new denomination. He changed the world, absolutely changed the world. There were some things about his life that uh, didn't go quite so soundly, and is often the case, um, and we see it in the lives of many of the Christian leaders throughout history, that they struggled maybe on the home front more so, and Wesley was not exempt from that. His, his marriage and his role as father to his children suffered at times, uh, clearly, with all the time and ener energy he was investing in uh, leading the uh, church movement, but uh, he uh, made an incredible impact on, on the world and uh, directly on us as um, as part of uh, Methodist Church today. So uh, that's the wrap on, on John Wesley, and I think we got one more John to cover, correct? Yep. This is the last John of the day. Um, Jonathan Edwards, who you've probably, really, you've probably heard of. Um, Jonathan Edwards is really well known. So he was born in 1703. He was a pastor and theologian, thought to be by many to be the greatest theological mind that the New World has ever produced. Um, his preaching, uh, which helped spark the first great awakening, emphasized man's sin, God's judgment, God's sovereignty, and the necess necessity of personal conversion and just justification by faith. Edwards was born in East Windsor, Connecticut, from a very early age, he was thinking deeply about theological doctrine. At the age of 13, um, Edwards entered Yale. So uh, our, our kids, uh, well, your kids are past They're 13, well right? behind, yeah. Yeah, so I'm going to try to get uh, my kids in Yale by 13. By 13? Yeah. Good so luck with that. You got a lot of work to do. <laughs> yeah, you do. <laughs> um, at the age of 13, Edwards entered Yale and graduated at the head of his class at the age of 17, which is incredible, which just makes you think that this, this he was borderline genius, um, if not genius. Uh, he was licensed to preach at the age of 20, uh, which, again, is, is incredibly young. Um, I don't know how I would listen to a 20-year-old in pulpit. That would that'd be interesting. Yeah. That would be uh, pretty, pretty – well, definitely you have the blessing of the Spirit. It actually makes me think of David. David was young uh, when he got anointed to be king, so mm. – Anyways, in 1727, he was ordained in the Congregational Church and began serving in Northampton, Massachusetts with his grandfather and great revival preacher, um, and a great revival preacher, Sa Simeon Strode, I think? Solomon Solomon Strode. Stoddard, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, <laughs> about two years later, Stoddard died and Edwards assumed the full leadership of the church. Um, Edwards began to preach against the spiritual uh, lethargic um, culture of the church. Um, his first sermon series in Northampton was on justification by faith alone, for he feared that many had come to rely on their own goodness for salvation. Um, by most accounts, Edwards was not an impressive orator. Um, he, he normally just read his sermons with very little animation, with his face close to the manuscript because he had poor eyesight. Um, this I did not know before I did research. Um, yeah, just let everyone know. We, Paul and I did a lot of research for this podcast. So this isn't um, stuff that uh, we knew just off the top of our heads, but I didn't know he had poor eyesight. Um, it's also reported that he had poor penmanship, so he couldn't see and he couldn't write anything down. <laughs> So, two kind of go hand in hand, right? Yeah, right. exactly. Right. If you can't see to read, you probably can't see to write. Um, but his sincerity and the and his content of his messages were used by God to bring about a spiritual awakening. Um, 
Under Edwards' influence, the revival known as the Great Awakening took place, and Edwards penned um, a really powerful essay in 1736, an essay called A Faithful Narrative on the Surprising Work of God. Um, this was uh, work that was, uh, a, he penned this about the, the revival, the Great Awakening that was taking place. Um, in 1734, Edwards' preaching on justifi- justification by faith um, again, sparked um, this revival, a spiritual revival, broke out in his parish first. And then um, he, it's reported that um, when he preached in 1734 in December, there were six converts, and then it multiplied to about six converts a week, and then multiplied to about 30 by the spring converts a week. Um, and again, going back to this was not because of his great orator skills. Um, it's quoted from one observer wrote, one observer wrote about Jonathan Edwards preaching. He said, He scarcely gestured or even moved, and he made no attempt by the eloquence of his style or the beauty of his pictures to gratify to gratify the taste and um, the imagination. In- instead, his conviction came with overwhelming weight of argument with such intense intensity of feeling. So you can think of it as he, he read straight from the manuscript, but he would have some inflection in his voice, you know. Mm, so I like what you did there, yeah. <laughs> so he would have inflection in his voice, and so people were moved even though he was just reading it. So um, I need to have more inflection in my voice. Sometimes I can be a little monotone, so um, I need to have a voice like Paul's great sport, actually great sportscaster voice. So. Thank you. Are you still talking about me? No, I was talking about someone else. Oh, uh, someone else. <laughs> someone else. <laughs> Uh, during the Great Awakening, Everett contributed perhaps the most famous speech in American history, or famous sermon in American history, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which um, some of you, I, I heard of that before. Um, unfortunately, it, it was cast as if Everett was some emotional, judgmental revivalist when, when in fact he preached this sermon um, just as dispassionately as any of his other sermons. So it wasn't like he was some... Um, yelling and screaming, which was probably more like Whitfield, so he wasn't mm-hmm. wasn't like Whitfield. In spite of this dispassionate style of preaching, Edwards insisted that true religion is rooted in in uh, affections, not in reason. He defended the emotional outbursts of the Great Awakening, um, and um, he was someone who believed that emotions was important within um, the Christian walk. Um, in spite of this tremendous spiritual results, Jonathan Edwards was discharged from his church um, in 1750 when he attempted to limit communion to those who gave some evidence of conversion. He re- relocated to a small church in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, Massachusetts, where he served as a pastor and as a missionary to the Husantonic Indians. In 1758, Edwards became the president of the College of New Jersey, which later became Princeton University. But he died from complications of smallpox. Uh, smallpox um, was it? Like it's like it wasn't. He didn't get smallpox. He got complications from uh, receiving the vaccination vac- for vaccination it. Yeah. for smallpox. But right. uh, don't don't let right. that discourage you, friends. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> exactly. Please this get your vaccination. Yeah, this is not right. Um, I've been vaccinated and haven't haven't died yet. Um, anyways, Edwards' influence lives on through his sermons and others' writings, both theological and historical. Um, both. Uh, many of his stuff is available online for free that you can find. Um, he was, well, he can't make money off it anymore. Um, he was keenly interested in a way that the spirit moved to bring about spiritual awakening. Um, he carefully recorded and analyzed a lot of the religious activity in his area. He made every effort to determine where God was genuinely moving, um, where the religious fervor was and the result of the emotionalism. Um, he was also a staunch defender of Calvinism and the doctrines of the Re- Reformation. Um, so uh, one historian called him the American Calvin. So, yeah, that's kind of just a wrap on John Edwards. I mean, there's so much we could do. Actually, to be honest, all these men, 
perhaps maybe George Fox, but maybe all these men, you could do your own podcast. Well, you could do a podcast on George Fox. Wow. Maybe maybe people just don't know who he is, but yeah, um, Jonathan Edwards, Wesley Whitfield, all of them are huge names within um, the Christian circles. Um, I, I a lot of some of the ministers I listen to, they he mentions Jonathan Edwards all the time. Um, so he Jonathan Edwards continues to have an influence. And to be honest, too, when you, when you're preaching the Word of God and and you're being faithful to the Lord, the Word of God has been the word of God for, for eternity, right? It's been, it's been reaching people since Moses wrote it down. It's been reaching people since the gospel writers wrote it down. So um, the word of God is timeless, So, which is incredible because you can listen to sermons back in, in the early 18th century and they can still speak to you today. You can listen to sermons in the 16th or 15th or 14th century. You can listen to the early sermons by Peter in Acts and they still speak to us today because the word of God is timeless so um yeah these are it's kind of a wrap on um these early american they're really not all american actually most of them are british but early colonial time period so. well, thanks Stephen. i uh when you talked about timeless i thought i'm sure we're well over time but people are loving what we're saying so we'll, <laughs> right. i'll throw out a question anyway um the word of God is timeless, but we look at preachers such as Whitfield and Edwards and Stephen and I were discussing earlier how our impression of Edwards was often shaped by knowing the one thing that <laughs> we had known about him, and that was the title of his most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of, of an Angry God, and because of the title of that sermon, any uh, movie or show I've seen it depicted seen Jonathan Edwards depicted in he's always uh, hellfire and brimstone you know he's he's uh, angry and pounding his fists uh, jumping in the air type preacher but mm-hmm. clearly that's not the case uh, with how he delivered it nonetheless I think my understanding of preachers in in this time period that we're talking about was that they were um, more rough around the edges when they preach their content uh their their message was a little bit more um more emphatic and and they were willing to push people a little bit harder they were willing to call people out on stuff um you know i've even seen depictions of preachers who would uh, call out individuals in their congregation in the middle of their sermon for you know uh, John, I, I saw you walking into the <laughs> saloon the other day, and uh, I, you know, so all of that to to lead to this question: Do you feel like preachers nowadays have we grown soft, um, or have we found some more tenderness and, and love in our our delivery and our content, or are we missing something from previous generations, or are we in a better place uh, perhaps than they were in? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it, well, I think it speaks to the time and where the sermons were delivered. I mean, and it speaks to the culture in which the sermons were delivered. I mean, during that culture, perhaps people in general, not just ministers, but in general, people were more upfront and more calling each other out for different, because too, what you got to think of the early American colonies, they saw themselves as this, I mean, when the Puritans landed in on Plymouth Rock or whatever. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they wanted to start a Christian, um, really a Christian culture, a Christian land. So mm-hmm. Christian influence was still hugely influential in everyday life um, in the early colonies. Um, it's just a different culture now that we live in. We don't, the way we do things, the way we speak, um, it, it just wouldn't be as effective, I believe. Um, this is just my understand my opinion but i believe it wouldn't be effective to call out uh little little johnny or Susie or whatever for some offense <laughs> at the pulpit i mean i've heard it before and it just never goes over it doesn't go over well um so it's just a different time and I, and i think you can not necessarily be quote-unquote soft in your sermons I think it's just if you just preach the word of God and allow the spirit to convict, mm. I, I don't think this also goes back to the different preaching styles of Edwards and, and Whitfield. Whitfield is the the more 
active theological orator where Jonathan Edwards was reading from from the page, but both of them were influential in the Great Awakening. So it, it's not really the orator that has the greatest influence as much as God and the Spirit. Like God, if God can make a donkey speak, you know, he, he can make some great things happen from anyone who speaks his word, right? So, um, and it, it's more important too that the speaker is faithful to God and that they're committed to God's word and committed to preaching the whole um, the whole narrative of God's word and not withholding anything. I, I think that's the temptation now in our day and age is to withhold the more difficult things to speak about than it is mm-hmm. um, being a fire brimstone, mm-hmm. I guess. So, Yeah, I think you nailed it. I think preaching the word, uh, of course, it's, it's going to feel and look different in different contexts and cultures. Uh, but somehow that has to be our, our grounding, <coughs> uh, f- our force, that we would preach the word as we receive the word and that we wouldn't feel um, it necessary to add any uh, additional <laughs> like uh, anger and, and um, emphasis and uh, strength and conviction to, to something to, to frighten people or to intimidate them. Uh, or to make them feel guilty, um, but also that we wouldn't hold back from uh, communicating the Word of God as we've received it, that we wouldn't soften the message, that we wouldn't uh, avoid certain passages and and concepts, that we would be willing to challenge people to the extent that the Word of God is designed to challenge people in their lives um, with, with things that perhaps we're struggling with. So, uh, yeah, there's, there's no right or wrong. And, and, uh, I think it's always going to be something we strive after and never quite arrive at. But I think somehow just letting the word uh, be the word and and not trying to manipulate it to uh, fit your your time in history or your audience or your personal um, approach is is the key. So it's uh, but we're still humans and we're still using injecting our voice into the conversation. So it's impossible to do it without uh, that entirely um, but uh, being authentic to God's intent whatever the passage is that you're you're breaking down I think is so important so that's uh, 1700s and we got at least one more uh, we'll see how things shake out but uh, there's still some great figures in in Christian history to uh, to discover and to discuss with you and so we're looking forward to wrapping up this journey and, and looking to whatever the Lord has in mind for us next. So hopefully you're getting a lot out of it. Uh, if you have questions, you have the thoughts, uh, feel free to, to shoot them our direction. In the meantime, we hope we uh, continue to journey with you in other ways as uh, we, we embark on uh, worshiping and, and serving and growing together in all the different ways uh, here at Rocky River UMC that that is made possible. I uh, hope that we can grow a relationship with you even as you're you're listening and tuning into uh, these episodes as we keep rolling them out. Uh, but friends, uh, stay safe, stay well, stay healthy, and uh, have a great day. We'll talk to you next time.